We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Thank you for joining me for this water cooler conversation. I'm Nick Cater, Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre. It seems a little strange to me that two weeks into an election campaign, we're debating the question, what is a woman? But the controversy over the candidate selected by the Liberal Party in a northern Sydney seat has made this one of the barbecue-stopping issues so far. Don't get me wrong, the, the rising cost of living and health concerns, particularly arising from the pandemic, will be crucial issues in deciding this election, as will uh, Australia's response to rising threats to global stability in Europe and nearer to home. But for me, the issues at stake in the transgender debate are so far-reaching that uh, we can't simply ignore them. In a moment, I'll be speaking to Brendan O'Neill, chief political correspondent with Spiked. But first, let me sketch the background to the debate in Australia. Senator Claire Chandler has been among those who have campaigned for transgender women, that is biological men, to be kept out of women's sporting competitions. She's put forward a private bill in the Senate to that effect. She faced an alarming amount of pushback, including from some members of her own party. She's been falsely accused of transphobia, the modern crime of harbouring hateful attitude towards a particular class of vulnerable people. Well, given the heat, it's not surprising that many politicians and others have thought it wiser to stay out of this particular kitchen. Not so the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, who announced his support for Chandler's bill in February. More recently, the Prime Minister played an active part in pre-selecting Catherine Deaves, as the Liberals' candidate in the seat of Warringah, which you'll remember was lost by former Prime Minister Tony Abbott to independent Zali Stegel at the last election. Now, Deves has been an active campaigner for the rights of women and girls, notably on the issue of women's sport, but she's also expressed concerns about the protection of teenage girls in particular who are considering transitioning. Some think this controversy will damage her election chances along with those of her party, I don't believe it will. The public is overwhelmingly on Dee's side on this one. A survey of a 1,000 voters in the last two weeks by Compass Polling found that two-thirds of voters agree that transgender biological men should not be allowed to compete against biological women in sporting competitions. Her opponent, Zali Stegel, has come out on the other side of the argument. She's called Dee's and anybody who shares her views transphobic. Yet four out of five coalition voters agree with Deves on this one, and three out of five Labour voters do as well. I was joined recently by Brendan O'Neill, as I say, to record a conversation on this topic for a podcast called The Six O'Clock Swill, which I host each week together with The Daily Telegraph's Tim Blair. If you haven't discovered it already, you'll find a link to it in the notes to this podcast. We recorded the conversation before Catherine Dee's views became an issue, but nonetheless, I think you'll find the conversation pertinent to the current debate. Brendan, like me, you must be bemused by the Catania Brown-Jackson incident in the United States. That was the, the confirmation hearing for her nomination to the Supreme Court, at which she failed to uh, be able to answer the question, what is a woman? We've played that a couple of times on this podcast. I won't do it again, but I will play you, Brendan, if I may... Just an extract, and I wouldn't normally bore an overseas guest with an extract from the Senate (laughs) Estimates Committee in Canberra, but on this occasion, I think you'll appreciate why it's worth listening to. Can someone please provide me with a definition of what a woman is? Department of Health. 
Definition of a man, definition of a woman. Anyone? It's pretty basic. It's basic stuff. Professor Murphy. <laughs> there, look, I think there are, there are a variety of definitions. And I, I think a simple perhaps, one. perhaps to give a, a more fulsome answer, we should take that on notice. You're going to take on notice yeah. the question of what a woman is. No, well, there, there are a variety. It, it's a very... It's a very uh, it's a very contested space at the moment, Senator. It's not I just mean, a woman who's born a woman. But there are definitions in terms of how people identify themselves. So we're happy to provide our working that definition is on one of the, I've only been here two years. That's the best thing I've seen thus far. That was Dr Brendan Murphy, by the way, your namesake, who's the Secretary of the Department of Health here. Uh, I've got a lot of sympathy for him, to be honest. I mean, it is a con- he's right, it's a contested space. It shouldn't be, but it is. And it does seem to me it's not up to bureaucrats to be fighting the culture war, putting themselves in the way of the woke tanks as they come over the hill. That's, that's the sort of leadership we expect from politicians and church leaders and others. Um, what about you? Am I being too soft on him? No, I, I understand that. I mean, he the last thing people like that want is to be in the firing line of the culture war, which is what a lot of us, where a lot of us find ourselves these days. Um, But I think this question of what is a woman is one of the most fascinating questions of our time, precisely because so many members of the political class seem incapable of answering a question which most five and six year olds could answer, or at least they could have a few years ago. So I find that really extraordinary. And um, in the UK, it's really become one of the biggest issues in politics, bizarrely. Keir Starmer has been asked, what is a woman? And he can't, Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, he's been asked, what is a woman? He can't answer it. He was asked recently, can a woman have a penis? And he literally said, um, uh, well, mm," I mean, he just couldn't say yes or no to that question. And uh, one good thing has happened recently, which is that Boris Johnson has come out and been a bit more clear-headed and said that biological males should not be in women's sports and they should not be in women's spaces like domestic refuge, violence refuges and so on. So we finally seem to have a politician in Boris who's willing to acknowledge that there are men and women and that they have different interests sometimes. But the way in which so many people can't answer that question, I think, really speaks to how far the trans ideology has gone. And it really is time for a pushback, I think. Yeah, well, Boris, by all accounts, has done a lot of research in his younger years and knows a fair bit about women, I think. But look, I mean, look, it's enough sort of punishment for Brendan Murphy, I think, to, that he will know. He'll know this because he's smart enough. He'll know that if he was to drive 40 kilometres down the road to the Royal Hotel at Yass and stand in the front bar on a Friday afternoon, he would be the laughing stock. Um, and, and you're right that this has highlighted the absurdity of wokeness and possibly pushed us that point, you know, a stage further to the point where it collapses under the weight of its own absurdity, let's hope. But um, the real worry for me here is that you have this political class, um, you know, that have become overtaken by woke ideology and pushed around by the woke industrial complex and um, they are just so far out of touch with middle Australia now and by middle Australia I mean probably 80% of Australia that it's becoming a real threat to our civic society I think. Have I, have I, have I, am I overstating it? 
No, not at all. I think that's why the, the question, what is a woman, is actually so important, because lots of people in the UK, in, in the kind of liberal media, they're saying it's just a distraction. It's a distraction from the cost of living crisis, from the energy crisis. Um, the journalists who are asking this question are just trying to embarrass the Labour Party. They have this very uh, cynical view of why this has become a talking point. But I actually think it makes perfect sense, because if our politicians cannot define what a woman is, why should we trust them on any other issue? It's become a measure of how attached they are to reality and how in touch they are with ordinary people who understand biology very well and who know the difference between men and women. So I think it's very important that it's become this flashpoint question in politics because what we're really doing, I think, is putting politicians on the spot and saying, have you completely lost all sense of reason or do you still have a little bit left? That's what this question now represents. And I think it is a, it's a very confronting question for those who've been sucked into uh, wokeness and it's a way of dragging them out of it. And I know many people in the UK who talk about this issue more than they talk about the cost of living crisis. People are very worried really? about the cost mm. of living crisis. There's no question about that. But the thing that really animates lots of the people I speak to, and this is people outside of the media, ordinary working people, is uh, the culture war. The culture war question of how we view our history, why Keir Starmer can't say that women don't have penises, uh, why Sharon Davis, the Olympian swimmer, is currently being uh, getting death threats simply for saying that men should not take part in women's sports. People are really exercised by these questions and they want to know how and why the elites have lost the plot. So I think it's become... I think it's sensible that it's become this very central question in politics and we want them to answer it so that we know if they are serious people or not. Let's, let's throw this back on our profession. You and me, the commentariat, right? That's what we are, whether we like it or not. Now, the, the, you know, how do, how do we get to this point, you know, that we allowed this idea to take hold and, and so many... You, you're not, and I hope I'm not, but so many of our fellow commentators are too afraid even to tackle this subject. And um, it, it's it's just, it, you know, it, how did we get to this point? And in such a short space of time, right? I mean, it seems only yesterday we were fighting the same-sex marriage issue and now, and everybody said, oh, it's, a, it's a, the, the beginning of the slippery slope and we're going to go down into even weirder things. And no, they said, no, no, no. And yet there's always a new battle, isn't there? And they seem to get every progressive battle seems to get stranger more contrived and more dangerous for the fabric of society it seems to me than the previous one yeah and i think the the trans issue really is at the center of all of that because this is not just about what is a woman and and why can't we say the word woman but from that question springs so much more what is a man? How do men and women relate to each other? What is a mother? What is a father? We know that there are National Health Trust services in the UK that now discourage the use of words like mother, and instead mm. they say birthing parent. Uh, they say chest feeding instead of breastfeeding. They say uh, people with a cervix or people who menstruate rather than woman. Uh, all of this stuff, you know, this reordering of language as well, which is always a sign that Orwellianism is taking place. Mm. And when you interfere with language in that way, what you're ultimately trying to do is to interfere with thought and to change how people think about 
the sexes, the relation between the sexes, family life, community life, all of which are built on, on the building blocks of recognising that there is a biological distinction between men and women, that men and women should be entirely equal, but there are times in the community when they play a different role in terms of pregnancy, childbirth, child-rearing, and so on. All of those things that we've taken for granted as societies for a long time are thrown up in the air by this new ideology. And so that's why I think it's so problematic, and that's why it's worth criticising. I also think that's why so many mainstream institutions find themselves drawn to it, because they recognise it is a way of upending tradition, and it is a way of, of transforming the way people think and inculcating them into this kind of uh, new ideology, this new way of approaching the world. I don't mean that in a conspiratorial way. I don't think all these institutions have got together and said, look, trans is the way to transform the people. But I think instinctively they're drawn to this because they recognise that it's a way of dislodging more traditional community-based ways of thinking and encouraging people to become more identitarian, more individualist. And that, I think, is a real problem. So it really does need pushback in terms of of how it came about so quickly i think I, I think it's a bit of a boiling frog situation i actually think it's been going on for a few years i remember 6 or 7 years ago uh, bradley manin um the leaker of american secrets came out as chelsea manin and instantly the bbc and the guardian uh, referred to him as her and referred to him as Chelsea. And I wrote a piece saying, this is really weird. You know, can we can we be anything we want? And I got this furious pushback. And I hadn't clocked at all that this kind of thing was going on. It was the first time I recognised it. So it had obviously been happening, this notion that you can click your fingers and change your gender. Uh, and that was six or seven years ago. And it's got worse and worse since then. And then, of course, there's the culture of tyranny and the culture of fear. Any woman in particular who raises questions about this will be hounded in the most unbelievable way. If you look at J.K. Rowling, she's subjected to death threats, rape threats. People want to cancel her, but fortunately she is uncancelable. Uh, that kind of fury means that lots of ordinary people are unwilling to speak out about this because they know the trouble they'll get themselves into. So it's protected by censorship. That's the other problem. And that's why we need more freedom of thought on this issue in particular. Yeah, and I think that's one notable thing about this issue, Brendan. You'd have noticed it, but you've, 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 you've come into conflict with the transgender activists, as I have. I'm still facing a, a press council uh, complaint, which we're gradually dealing with. But, you know, they're not giving up. You know, they, they'll look for anything to attack you. And, and Douglas Murray drawn attention to this um you know that this is this is a, a if we can call it a progressive movement i mean that's a travesty of the english language to call it progressive but to, it, it it is it is it, it's using the attack dog techniques and the silencing techniques uh, in quite a coordinated uh, choreographed way that has a force quite like any other, right? And and I understand why a lot of people, probably Brendan Murphy included, just don't want to go there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it, the, the what happens to women in particular in the UK who speak out on this issue is really quite mind-blowing. I mean, I've never seen misogyny like this. And that's why 
I sometimes refer to transgender activism as misogyny in drag because it presents itself as a progressive movement, but actually it is deeply misogynistic. I mean, the things they say about these women who criticize the trans ideology, they call them hag, old hags, uh, the B word, the C word, uh, all those kinds of abusive terms and, and very often misogynistic terms. And of course, they call them TERFs trans-exclusionary exclusionary radical feminists. Most of them, well, a lot of them are not radical feminists, as it happens, but TERF has basically become a modern form of saying witch. And if you're a TERF, then you deserve to be cast out of polite society. Mm -hmm. So that's why a lot of people don't want to get involved. They don't want to be branded in that way, and they don't want to risk losing their jobs, which has happened to people in the UK. They don't want to be threatened with violence, which has also happened. Or they don't want protesters turning up when they go to speak at universities. That's happened to me. And, and men get it much more lightly than women do. But when I last spoke at Oxford, there was a, a gathering of about 40 people waving placards saying Brendan O'Neill hates trans people, which of course is not true at all. And uh, that, that kind of menacing approach to people who simply express disagreement or questioning about woke ideology... That's one of the reasons they're allowed to get away with what they do. And another good reason for insisting on freedom of speech in all situations. At the Menzies Research Centre, we're passionate believers in the power of ideas to change conversations and shape the future. Thanks to podcasts, we've extended our circle of conversations to thousands of people every month. Podcasts are a great medium for think tanks. Listeners turn into podcasts for longer, more sophisticated conversations than they can find on conventional media, and we're very happy to provide them. And thanks to the generosity of our supporters, we can deliver them for free. You can show your support by subscribing to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe or click on the link in the podcast notes. Look, we'll get off this under some British topics I want to talk to you about because it does seem a little bit rude of me to, to wake you up at some ungodly hour in London to talk about the United States. But we've got to talk about Florida, I think, and, and the situation there where a perfectly reasonable measure by, by uh, the Republican administration to uh, bring some limits to the teaching of gender and transgender and, and indeed sex education generally to kids, you know, age Y to three, which seems to be quite reasonable, uh, has had this onslaught from from the activists, as we expect, as we've just taken, talked about. But I was totally taken aback by the way Disney, Disney Corporation, has just gone, been overtaken completely by this. And, and we've got this really, I think, very significant and quite ugly confrontation between Disney Corporation and, and the governor, Ron DeSantis. Yeah, I think it's incredibly significant. And I think it's, in many ways, it's the flashpoint issue of, of wokeness right now, or whatever we're supposed to call this new ideology. Um, I think the, the, there are two things to note about Ron DeSantis's bill. Uh, the first thing, which is Bill 1557, although most people won't have heard that name because it's referred to in the media as the Don't Say Gay Bill, the idea being that teachers are forbidden from talking about homosexuality or gay relationships with their kids. Uh, number one, that's just not true. The bill doesn't mention the word gay once, 
And all it says is that there should be no classroom instruction. I think instruction is a really important word here. No classroom instruction on issues relating to sexual orientation or gender ideology uh, between kindergarten and grade three. So basically, kids under 10 should not be given classroom instruction on sexual orientation or gender fluidity. Now, I think that is perfectly reasonable. Mm. I think most people would agree with that. It, it doesn't forbid teachers from talking about issues related to homosexuality if it were to be done in an age-appropriate way. It just says that this cannot be the focus of education for those young kids. And when you see the protesters pushing back, you think, what are you asking for? Are you asking for the right of teachers to educate six-year-olds about sexual orientation in an age-inappropriate way. That's essentially, if they're opposed to this bill, yeah. that's essentially what they're saying, which is, which is pretty extraordinary. And then the second aspect of it, as you say, is the Disney intervention, because this really does show that woke corporatism is out of control, and it is meddling, increasingly meddling with democracy. So Disney says... It will fund groups that want to overthrow uh, the, the supposed don't say gay bill. It wants to do everything within its power to make sure that this bill doesn't stay law for very long. And it's basically standing up to Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis was voted into power by uh, more than four million people. Disney is not, the, the, the guys who run Disney are not elected by anybody. So this is an interference in the democratic process by a huge corporation and I think that's really unacceptable. Yeah, but by coincidence, Brendan, I've only just got to read Vivek Ramaswamy's Woke, Woke Inc. Inside the Social Justice Scam, uh, which is a, a brilliant book. I wish I'd read it when it first came out, as people urged me to do, because what he does here is set out more clearly than ever before, I think, this what he calls the woke industrial complex, which is this yeah. ugly marriage of convenience between the activists and corporations and and the consequence of this of course and we're seeing this played out in real time in in florida is that the corporations and essentially we're talking about some executives some of whom are good at making money some of a lot of whom aren't incidentally um who've decided that they know better than the ordinary people right that their view on things should count ahead of the democratic consensus that that they're 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 wiser than the people who's yeah buy their products uh, it, it's it's scary it's frightening for democracy but ultimately i would have thought it's bad for them isn't it i mean i gather there's a huge backlash against disney products you know poor old mickey mouse is taking a bit of a pounding isn't he over there yeah i think so they'll go out of business won't they yeah i think people often use the phrase uh go woke go broke i mean i think it's uh, i actually think it's it's sometimes a bit more complicated than that because what you often find is that corporations that uh, reinvigorate themselves through the ideology of wokeness, they, they do lose a bit of support amongst ordinary people, but they gain kind of moral brownie points in the new establishment, which I think can be very beneficial for these kinds of companies. And also, you know, there are many, many mums and dads who have always wanted to take their kids to Disney World in Florida, who probably still will do that. You know, they're more interested in keeping their kids happy than they are in, uh, you know, flipping the bird at the guys who run Disney. So it can be a bit complicated. They Sometimes they don't suffer the consequences that I think they should when they behave in such an anti-democratic way. But I think the, the key thing is that here is the, you know, the left often goes on about 
the undue influence of big money and big donations in politics. They, that's a huge issue in the United States. It's an issue in, in the UK too. I'm sure it's an issue in Australia. The left mm. talks about who's making donations to political parties. Why are we giving these rich people such influence? They, they say that all the time and they actually have a point in some instances. But then they will turn around and openly welcome Disney and actually call on Disney to interfere in the democratic process. They have cheered along as companies like Coca-Cola and Delta Airlines and PayPal have threatened to pull out of certain states in America, either for passing voting legislation, uh, the, the, the reforming voting, or bathroom bills where you have to, a bill that says you have to use the bathroom that accords with your biological sex. When states have done that, these huge companies have threatened essentially to punish them by pulling out or refusing to do the investments they said they would do. And the left has no problem with that at all. So you now have a situation where uh, the left that once called for the overthrow of capitalism is now cheering on as capitalism goes woke and threatens the democratic process, threatens laws that were voted in by people we elected. And so I think the that blind spot on the left is is really interesting and ripe for exploitation. I think we should point out their hypocrisy and point mm. out that they've become the unwitting stooges of interfering capitalism. If they were reasonable, they'd be thanking us, I think, for pointing this out because, yeah. you know, they're going to be unelectable. I mean, can you imagine, I mean, just suppose they, I mentioned this last week, just suppose they managed to keep, somehow keep, keep, keep Joe Biden alive to fight the next election and and uh, Ron DeSantis is the challenger can you imagine the the presidential debate where where Joe Biden is forced to stand up for the right to groom young kids in school effectively with this kind of education and and DeSantis is saying you've got to be joking I mean th this would just be death for the Democrats I would have thought as a major party if they pursued this to to its ultimate degree Oh, it, it would just be extraordinary. I mean, we already know how out of touch the Democrats are, how clueless Joe Biden is, and also Kamala Harris. You know, people often talk about the senility of, of Biden, which is true. He seems to be getting worse and worse, as far as I can tell. But Harris is, is not much better when it comes to geopolitical affairs or making sense or saying things that kind of connect with ordinary people. So there's a broader problem in the Democrats that goes beyond Biden's age and, and uselessness and really speaks to a party that has separated itself off from ordinary people and is increasingly dragged into these eccentric East Coast, West Coast ways of thinking. Uh, if you look at, for example, you'll often hear Democrats using words like uh, Latinx or Latinx. I'm never quite sure how to understand how to pronounce the word Latinx, which is how they refer to Latino people. But virtually no Latino people in the US use that word. And in fact, many of them have said in polls that they don't like that word. It doesn't make sense to them. It feels alien to them. And yet you have these establishment figures who still use it because it's part of the in-crowd language. It's part of the code of the new elites. You know, it's, it's, it's very Edwardian in a sense. Are you using the right words? Do you dress mm -hmm. in the right way? Are you sending the right signals? It's, it's all about inter-elite communication rather than connecting with ordinary people. And I think the Democrats have been swept along by this new language and this new way of thinking 
without realising or, or probably without caring that it's turning off vast numbers of working class people from all sorts of backgrounds. So the next American election, I think, is going to be absolutely fascinating. If it's DeSantis versus Biden, I think it will be one of the best political showdowns we've seen in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be great. A lot of sport. Look, I mean, it, we can't, we can't, of course, go through this discussion without mentioning the Ukraine, and we're not going to be able to do it justice. But I thought you picked up on a very interesting aspect. You picked up on uh, Vladimir Putin's um, excuse, if you like, pretty weak excuse at that, for going into Ukraine, which was to denazify it. Which, of course, we find, you know, quite an offensive and absurd way of thinking about what he's done. But um, because in many ways he's behaved not dissimilar way to the you know the, the German forces in World War Two. But look, I mean, you, you, I thought in your column, recent column in Spike, you you pointed out the dangers of really going near this word Nazi at all, whichever perspective you're coming from. Yeah, that's right. I think it, you know I've always bristled at the way in which the word Nazi and fascists are, are flung around these days by people who just want to brand their opponents in an easy, cynical way. So people who voted for Trump, you know, Trump was referred to as the new Hitler. Brexit was referred to as a kind of echoes of the 1930s. And we were told that fascism was had returned to the British masses and the American masses. So we've seen these kinds of ridiculous slurs a lot over the past few years. And I think what's interesting and and depraved about Putin's justification for his barbarous war on Ukraine is that he has used the language of denazification. Um, the Russian uh, contribution to the war against Nazi Germany is a, is a central part of Russia's national identity. So he's really exploiting that to try to justify his unprovoked war of aggression against a sovereign nation. And he frequently refers to the Ukrainian government as neo-Nazis. There was an article published in a state media outlet in Russia uh, about a week or so ago, which was one of the most repulsive articles I've ever read, basically saying all Ukrainians have Nazi tendencies, they will need to be re-educated, they will need to be repressed, and they will need to be punished in some way if they don't let go of their Nazi views. And it referred to them as the Nazified masses. But, and I started thinking, that's what we've heard in the West you know, in different kinds of language, we're basically being told that there are Nazified masses in America and uh, Britain and, and France and uh, Australia. So th the way in which I think what Ukraine shows is just how dehumanizing the Nazi brand can be, because this is a war built on the Nazi slur and massacres have been carried out in the name of that Nazi slur. So I would say to anyone in the West who's still playing this cynical game of calling their opponents Nazis, you know, shame on you because you're in the you, you're pursuing the same tactic as Vladimir Putin, and that's pretty disgraceful. We we had a a very bizarre example of this during the 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 lockdown in Melbourne. You remember because we spoke about it. We spoke about it on your podcast about the extraordinary police tactics in Melbourne. You know, basically going in as a a paramilitary wing of the Dan Andrews government to just crush protesters who were just wanting to make their voice heard. Former opposition leader Bill Shorten, the man who should have known better, came out against the protesters. I mean, you would have thought anybody with a decent sense of civic justice had come out against the police, but no, he came out against the protesters. He called them man-baby Nazis. 
<laughs> Man, baby Nazis. I don't really thought that was funny, but at the time I thought, oh, you know, it's exactly yeah. your point, isn't it? Using the word Nazis just to demonize and dehumanize people with whom you disagree. Yeah, it's it's really outrageous. And I followed some of that discussion around the anti-lockdown protests in Australia. And I was amazed by how many people on the left were referring to working class people. Lots of these were working class people as Nazis and as far mm. right. And, you know, uh, when uh, when people who are involved in trade unions protested and were worried about their jobs, they were referred to as Nazis, too. Really, really ugly stuff. And really indicative of the extent to which the left has turned its back on ordinary people. But I think there's there's a couple of problems with the Nazi slur. The first, of course, is that it's so cynical and lazy. It's just a way of writing people off without engaging with the substance of their arguments. So it's a very anti-intellectual, anti-political thing to do. And the second thing is it, it demeans the memory of the Holocaust. And that's one of my great concerns with the way in which Nazi, the accusation of Nazism has become so commonplace these days and the claim that everyone is the new Hitler. It really relativizes what happened in the 1930s and 40s because if Nazism is everywhere, then it's not really anywhere. And, and if everyone is Hitler, then maybe Hitler wasn't that bad. Maybe he was just another run-of-the-mill irritating politicians so they have this very warped effect on history they they demean historical memory and they make the holocaust itself seem mundane you know just another thing that happens all the time with these horrible politicians none of us like so i think we've really got to discourage people away from this kind of language firstly because it's demeaning to the targets secondly because it rewrites history in a really problematic way and thirdly, because look at Vladimir Putin. This is where uh, dehumanizing your opponents can end up. It can end up with feeling no compunction at all about killing them because some of those Russian soldiers will genuinely believe that Ukrainians are a neo-Nazi menace to European society. And so when you implant those ideas in people's heads, you create a really dangerous situation. So I hope people in the West will look at the Ukraine situation and say... I'm not going to do this anymore because it's a it's a bad thing to do. Hello, before, before I let you go, that one one thing about Ukraine, about the Russian offensive in Ukraine and the um, the woke offensive in Florida and elsewhere, you know, is, is it, uh, Boris Johnson has somehow gone off our radar. I'd love to hear about him, and I uh, I don't know if I told you I ran into his dad, Stanley. Uh, oh, yeah. At the it was at the opening night of uh, the Phantom of the Opera. And um, I was lucky enough to wow. be invited to the after party where there was Andrew Lloyd Webber, would you believe? And uh, I ran into Stanley wow. Stanley Johnson, who turned out to be a very good egg. I mean, he's a very nice guy to have a beer with. But I, I didn't talk too much about his son. Has he, and all that business about him, um, you know, I thought quite foolishly breaking the COVID rules and then being less than truthful about it. It really upset the British people and there was talk that he might be on his way out but he seems to have weathered that storm has he i think he has that's my impression at the moment but things could change and i think the 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 ukraine war and boris's you know pretty uh good intervention into it you know he's been very positive about the ukrainian fight back and uh, the british government has assisted the ukrainians quite well and uh, some in Ukraine are referring to the UK as their most important ally. So Boris has actually done pretty well on the Ukraine issue. Um, 
And there was a sense in the UK that the Ukraine crisis would wash Partygate aside. You know, mm. why would we talk about such petty matters as Partygate when there's a war in Europe uh, that threatens to, you know, get worse and worse? I think that was the thinking, but I think it, that could change. I think, you know, war fatigue is already setting in in parts of the British media. You know what the media is like. There's a constant churn. They're always looking for the latest explosive issue. So it's very possible Partygate could come back. Um, the way I see Partygate is, firstly, it was, as you say, incredibly foolish for Boris and his um, colleagues to take part in uh, rule-breaking parties while the rest of us weren't allowed to visit anyone else's house. And they were there in Downing Street and other buildings with up to 30 people drinking booze and, and eating snacks. That's a bad thing to do. But I also think Partygate is being exploited by the Remainer wing of the elites and by people who just don't like Boris, primarily because he pushed Brexit through. So uh, there's lots of stuff over here, headlines like, if, if Boris goes, Brexit goes. So there's this desire to get rid of Boris, to overthrow Brexit, and some people see Partygate as an opportunity to do that. I really dislike what Boris and his colleagues did, but... These are enthusiastically elected people, and I will defend their democratic right to run this country, even though they had parties that I wasn't allowed to have. And look, I mean, one thing that we're pretty envious of, it, I mean, certainly people like I, me are envious of, is the, the freedoms Britons now have to travel abroad. And um, if I came back to the UK, if I had to come back, I, there'd be no problem. I could just walk in, no, you know, sticks up the nose and all that other stuff they do to you. Uh, it seems to be the only sensible response with the pandemic in this phase. But um, here, unfortunately, we're still there are still big restrictions. If you're not vaccinated, you're not allowed to leave the country. Now, that to me is a fundamental. It's the sort of thing we used to think communist countries did, and it's it's just incredibly hurtful and demeaning to people who who make a conscious choice and a realistic choice not to get vaccinated. But where's the logic in that? <laughs> you know, if, if they're worried about their spreading COVID to the rest of the population, then surely they're subsidising their tickets out of the country. But like, I'm afraid none of it makes any sense. But you seem to have got back onto a bit of equilibrium in Britain, at least. Yeah, we, we have, thankfully, at last. And um, what's interesting about Britain at the moment is that COVID is spreading quite wildly right now. Lots and lots and lots of people in the UK have COVID. The last figure I saw was one in 13 people has COVID at the moment in Britain, which is very, very high. Um, I know lots of people who've currently got it. Uh, and so it seems like, you know, it's running riot once again, but we're holding firm. We haven't brought in any restrictions. Life is completely and utterly back to normal. And we don't even force people to isolate anymore if they catch COVID. The advice, of course, is that you should stay at home. As people have always done when they get a cold or the flu or something, people tend to stay at home. They don't visit very old relatives. People have always deployed that kind of common sense. They didn't need the law to force them to do it. So now we don't even have to stay isolated if we catch COVID, which is good because the economy would collapse if we had to do that. So we're back to normal and lots of European countries are shaking off their COVID restrictions too so that we can travel relatively freely to, to most countries. Not Spain and Italy yet, uh, which is very disappointing for British holidaymakers, but I think they'll come on board soon. So yes, I think this is the way to do it. 
We recognize now that this virus is here to stay. It will probably mutate. It will probably become just another member of the, the family of human diseases that we all catch every now and then. Uh, but you can't grind society to a halt or suspend civil liberty or threaten the economy just because there's a virus going around. So Britain is doing the right thing now. And the sooner other countries catch up and get back to normal, regardless of the spread of COVID, the better. Well, that was Brendan O'Neill in an infrastructure. Three, two, one. Well, that was Brendan O'Neill in a conversation I recorded with him a couple of weeks ago uh, for a podcast called The Six O'Clock Swill, which I record each week with Tim Blair. You can find a link to that in the notes to this podcast. In the meantime, please let me know uh, if you have any comments or any thoughts about either the topics we've discussed today or any other topics, particularly as we approach this very crucial federal election. You can use the email address watercooler at menziesrc.org. That will find me, watercooler at menziesrc.org. I'm Nick Cater for the Menzies Research Centre, and thank you for joining us. You've been listening to another watercooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening. Music.